Welcome to the Agent Victoria podcast. I'm your host, Chris Fernandez-Packham. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, take a minute to leave a review on iTunes and subscribe or get in touch with me using email at agentvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. On with the show. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to my quick mini-sode on gin. I say mini-sode, but as usual, I've gone down the podcast rabbit hole again. The mini-sodes were originally supposed to be a quick 10 minutes a week between the main shows. Instead, they've turned into what I hope are more interesting ventures off the main path into the forests of Victorian history. Forests in which we can roam freely, as Ruskin would have urged, and indulge ourselves. The spark of inspiration for this show was a visit to the Bombay Sapphire Distillery in Hampshire in the south of England. It is a divine little site by a river with glorious historic buildings and plenty of local history. I picked up a few bits about gin making and suddenly it had to be a topic for a mini-sode. Once I started researching, well, I can't ever leave a stone unturned, can I, listeners? You'd be disappointed. Why am I talking about gin at all, though? Surely gin was a 17th and 18th century issue, not a Victorian 19th century problem. The famous gin lane of Hogarth and all that. Well, according to our lovely guide the Bombay Sapphire Distillery, that print is often badly misunderstood because most modern viewers over-focus on the image of the mother letting her child die and they fail to notice a lot of the symbolism hidden in the piece. Symbolism that was crucially linked to the companion piece, Beer Lane by Hogarth. And they are two sides of the same coin. Gin Lane is the place of ruin by a foreigner's drink, whereas Beer Lane is a place of prosperity, where British drinkers can make their own nourishing British beer, and the pawnbrokers is the only business going broke. Have a guess which industry lobby was funding these paintings by Hogarth. And this illustrates a key point. Alcohol is just a substance produced by various methods, but it ends up having cultural values attached to it. Gin Lane is not an attack on gin in a vacuum. It is also an attack on the poor, an attack on society in general, but also an attack on the prevailing political establishment of the day and a campaign against taxes on beer. You can be sure that Hogarth's prints wouldn't include a tax on respectable aristocrats who drank hard on their estates. It was only known rakes and dandies and dissolute wastrels who featured. Cheap gin, rather than gin, was his target. Still, the history of gin is intimately bound up with the Victorians. Gin Lane was the starting point of the journey of gin, 
in many ways. It was a journey that would actually lead to some fascinating changes in status in the Victorian era. It would require some vital Victorian inventions and huge social changes. Plus, it would lead to changes to the British Army and the British Empire to reach the point where gin was in many ways the quintessential Victorian drink, ranked only a little below the pinnacle of gentlemen's drinks, brandy and champagne. I can't emphasise enough how important gin became to the Victorians. I want you to have a think about how staggeringly difficult it really is to make a bottle of gin at all. It might appear a very simple drink in the modern world, but that's only because we have become lazy about obtaining our ingredients in the modern world with our oil and electricity-based economies, and also because we haven't had to invent gin. If we were sitting down with a blank piece of paper, no electricity, and a book of plants that is of dubious accuracy, well, we might begin to appreciate the sheer brilliance of the British for inventing it. Why, yes, I did just say the British invented it. Not the Dutch, for those of you excitedly thinking about the origins of the phrase Dutch courage. There's a real question about whether I should be saying that. There's a very strong school of historical thought says gin was invented by the Dutch, brought to England, and then highly encouraged by the Protestant King William of Orange when he became King of England during the Glorious Revolution. On this reading of history, it is very straightforward. The Dutch invented it, then the English modified it, and came up with an improved version. The gin makers, Sipsmith, for example, certainly hold this view. And in a BBC In Our Time podcast on gin, the expert historians agreed with this view. Case closed, surely. I'm afraid not. The Dutch absolutely did invent a drink that contained juniper berries. It was called Geneva, but it was made from malt wine and the Dutch added various flavours to mask the harshness, including juniper berries for their health benefits. It was the ancestor to gin, but it was and is a different drink. It is actually a protected drink, like champagne or whiskey, and you can still buy it. There are lots of different kinds, and it is a high-quality product. I'm told tastes sort of like a mix of light malt whiskey and a gin, and can be drunk neat. Geneva was followed to England by King William of Orange in 1689, and he helped popularise it. But when the English tried to make it themselves, they had trouble. They just couldn't get it right, and they couldn't say the name. So they created a halfway between proper London dry-style gin and the original Geneva. They called it Old Tom Gin, and it was inferior to Geneva in many ways due to poor materials, lack of skill, and lower levels of purity. Geneva continued to be drunk in England, but it was more expensive. It was, and remains, a distinctly different 
drink. Now, I'm aware that this second narrative seems to be in conflict with lots of articles from gin companies and the views of some historians. But I am aware that there are plenty of articles on Dutch alcohol heritage websites that present this second narrative so that they can show Geneva as a distinct spirit with a distinct history. I'm laying both points out to you so that you can be aware that the origins of a drink or any food can be very difficult to pin down. My own personal view is actually for the second narrative. It feels more convincingly like how recipes change and evolve over time from similar but distinct ancestors. I'm trying to get hold of some professional historians of the subject, so I might need to add a postscript in a future show. But, yes, the Dutch did drink Geneva before battle, and that is where the expression Dutch courage comes from. But it wasn't gin. Also, the Dutch have an excellent military record and gave the English several severe beatings, so it is fair to say they have never lacked courage. Now, for those of you who haven't made bathtub gin at home, which I'm hoping is everyone, I'm going to give you a list of ingredients and a quick run through how to turn them into something spectacular. You have to start with the base alcohol, and this is ethanol, and this is a typically grain-based, though you can make it from grapes, but as we've established, that brings you smack into the Geneva controversy. Gin is only made from pure ethanol flavoured with juniper. Now, Bombay Sapphire ships theirs in from France in vast, vast amounts. And once you've got this, this reliable, pure source, well, then you need the botanicals. These are exactly what you would think. The plant materials that will create the flavours in your gin. The absolute essential is the juniper berry. It is the juniper berry that makes gin a gin when combined with the pure ethanol. These two ingredients are the fundamentals and without them you can't call the drink a gin. Firstly because it isn't one and secondly because it would be illegal. The juniper berries release various chemical flavours into the drink and a master distiller will have to decide how to manage the interaction between this release of flavours and the other flavours he or she wants to add during the process. Again, taking Bombay Sapphire for example, according to the Gin Factory website, quote, Bombay Sapphire has always talked about what was inside the bottle and has always focused attention onto the botanicals it uses and while they may not be the only gin to have a specialist master of botanicals, Ivano Donuti is surely one of the most respected in the trade. Juniper, coriander, angelica, almonds, cubeb berries, lemon peel, oris, licorice, cassia bark and grains of paradise. End quote. Now, have a think about the number of countries involved here. France, Italy, Spain, various parts of Asia, including Vietnam, 
Java, and Indonesia, India, America, Germany, Sri Lanka, and China. This might begin to explain why the Spice Islands were fought over, how interconnected the world was, and why the European powers were constantly snapping up seemingly random islands about power projection. The plants were incredibly valuable. If you're following the main show narrative, you might notice that I've been talking about Java during a major volcanic eruption, and I mentioned the British seizing it from the Dutch and giving a man named Sir Stamford Raffles the job of administering it. It is easy to look back from the modern point of view and assume that the conquest of somewhere was only to rule the native populations. Now that was often true, but it was usually only a part of the picture. Geography was also critical, and strategic points were eagerly snapped up. But above all, resources were often seen as more important than ruling populations. And in the 19th century, plants were a very, very valuable resource indeed. The Victorians would have had a much harder job of getting these materials. Think about the creativity and knowledge needed. Botanists had to initially identify the plants, unless they were well known already, like juniper or almonds or lemons. Then they had to be transported to the British mainland from around the world. How do you get a ton of cassia, for example, from Vietnam or Madagascar to Britain in 1830? You had to know what you were looking for, find it being grown in industrial quantities, which would often be far larger than native populations would or could have produced. So the Victorians needed to get an arrangement to set up to increase production, improve road and harbour links, arrange transportation, perhaps with the help of the Honourable East India Company, then battle through the various Atlantic storms and calms, up to touch at Portugal perhaps, and then on to Plymouth. Then the goods had to be shipped to markets, sold and resold, until eventually those little quills of cassia bark got to the distillery. And what if your ship sank, or the bark got wet? Those were enormous risks. You might be bankrupted. I should point out that if you ruined yourself financially in the Victorian era, it would be very much a case of sink or swim, even with family help. Debtor's prison might be the result. Even Dickens spent time in one as a child. Or you could end up picking rope in the poorhouse dreaming of the days when you drank fine brandy and ate roast beef on the Sunday as you slowly destroyed your fingers and hands picking the rope and starved. If you were lucky, perhaps you could buy some cheap gin to ease the pain. Was it worth the effort? Well, gin moved away from its seedy origins 
when some key technical innovations arrived. Glassmaking was transformed by the efforts of Robert Lucas Chance. Silvered mirrors and gas lighting were becoming increasingly common. Above all, though, new distillation methods, perfected by Annius Coffee, led to the coffee tower style still that could run continuously. The botanicals could now be infused rather than being just boiled into the gin or evaporated and passed through the coffee metal infuser basket or directly boiled in or used a mix of methods. Some distillers used an especially large tower method similar to whiskey makers. Then, after the botanicals had been infused, the gin had to be condensed and returned to the sill. It had to be mixed with distilled pure water to proof and be bottled. This was the new style of gin, and it produced something a world away from the old Tom gin that inspired the horrors of Gin Lane and the gin craze. It wasn't perfect, but variations on this design are still used today. One unfortunate difficulty was the difficulty in cleaning the coffee still towers. Cooling the giant cauldron kettles at the base took a long time, and of course, only small children could get inside the giant still to scrub it clean. Needless to say, serious burns and dead children could be the result. These changes, though, led to a sea change for gin. It was now a reliable and pure spirit. Unlike earlier gins, it was now safer to drink and didn't need sugar to cover for nasty tastes. It was no longer brewed in bathtubs and mixed with turpentine. Perhaps it is no surprise that gin came to be viewed as more pure and therefore more healthy by the Victorians. The new glass techniques led to the ornate gin palaces, shining mirrors and intricately etched glass, lit by gaslight to rival the fashionable pubs. The loftiest of gentlemen swells in the fancy, mixed with the workers. Dickens was especially struck by them. In sketches by Boz, he describes them, quote, All is light and brilliance. The hum of many voices issues from that splendid gin shop, which forms the commencement of the two streets opposite, and the gay building with the fantastically ornamented parapet, the illuminated clock, plate glass windows surrounded by stococo rosettes, and its profusion of gaslights in richly gilt burners is perfectly dazzling when contrasted with the darkness and the dirt we have just left. The interior is even gayer than the exterior. End quote. Imagine how he must have felt, or other visitors must have felt. It would have been amazing to visit one, to hear the excited chatter, to perhaps bump into Dickens himself as you take a small gin and cake by the gaslight, perhaps have what the Cockneys would have called a shandy gaff, a mix of gin, ale and ginger ale. You can see some magnificent examples of Gin Palace today. Try the Barton Arms in Birmingham 
which has a riot of colourful tiles and is a Grade II listed building, built in 1900. All the gaudy luxury the Victorians loved in their tiles. Or the Argyle Arms in Oxford Circus, which is described by Historic England as, quote, a mid-19th century metropolitan, mid-terraced public house, remodelled during the great public house boom at the turn of the century. The little altered plan form, with its separate drinking areas and the associated high-quality wood and glasswork, is a remarkable and rare survival, thought to be the best surviving example of the plan type to attain its 1900 fittings, end quote. And it is a miracle that buildings like this survived the London Blitz, and even more of a miracle, some Victorian glassware has survived. Or there's the Flying Horse in Oxford Street, previously known as the Tottenham, or perhaps the Punch Street Tavern in Fleet Street. This last one is a mecca for gin lovers, and I personally will drink the good health of any listener who wishes to buy me a gin there. Of course, some people were suspicious. Surely, if the distillers weren't tampering with the gin, then the sellers must be. An enterprising journalist decided to investigate. One of the chief complaints of the temperance movement was that the drinks were cut and mixed by publicans to cheat customers and endanger their health. The journalist John Broad decided to test beers and gins in around 1871. This is quite a long quote, so bear with me because I think it's fascinating. Quote, I recently procured eight samples of gin, of common gin, such as is sold over the public house counter at the rate of thousands of gallons every day. I thought it best to sample public houses situated in the lowest neighbourhoods. Not, be it understood, because I wished to write a sensational article and artfully devised to obtain choice material to that end, but purely as a means of saving myself trouble. My idea was to take the very worst neighbourhoods and then, if the results were very bad, to take neighbourhoods of a better class in the hopes of being able to show that it was only the hole and corner licence holder, the tradesman who accommodated the quality of his goods to the coarse and vitiated taste of his customer that chiefly required looking after and that the great majority of licensed victuallers are as honest in their dealings as could be desired and entitled to the respect of their fellow man. The most notorious neighbourhoods around London were visited for my gin collections. Saffron Hill, Leather Lane, Shadwell, The New Cut in Lambeth, Kent Street in the Borough, Chapel Street, Westminster, Shoreditch and Flower, and Dean Street in Spitalfields. A half pint of gin was procured at each place, and tenpence was the price paid for it, except in the Shoreditch case, where, on the strength of a prominent announcement made by a publican that he had on tap the very finest old Tom at 
four pence halfpenny a quartern. I became his customer to the extent of nine pence. Eight pints of beer were brought at the same time and at the same houses, and the sixteen samples were sealed and placed in the hands of a thoroughly competent analytical chemist who has made a most careful examination and has returned to me the following report, which I have more pleasure than I can express in laying before the reader. It should be premised that pure gin, as it is sent out from the distillery, commonly contains 40% of real spirit or absolute alcohol to 60 parts of water and that the most notorious ingredients of gin adulteration consist, or rather are popularly supposed to consist, of tincture of capsicum, paradise grains, turpentine, sulphate of zinc, and salt of tartar, end quote. Now the results were not quite what you might actually expect, and don't seem to have been what the journalist himself expected. So I'm going to give you a a quick sample of some of the results. Quote, Sample marked L. This was procured from the unsalubrious neighbourhood of Saffron Hill, a place abounding in courts and alleys, and peopled by as ragged, brawling, tippling a population as London can produce. In this sample were found 33 parts of real spirits and nothing besides but water sweetened with sugar and a suspicion of cayenne pepper. Sample G, this was from Leather Lane, from the very worst part of the lane, from a public house in an alley of low repute. In fact, one frequently visited by the police. Real alcohol, 32%. No sulphate of zinc, no paradise grains, nothing besides the spirit, except sugar and water, and some harmless aromatic flavourings. Sample H, from Shadwell, from Ratcliffe Highway, where, as soon as the gas is lighted in the evening, swarms of women of the most hideous type emerge from their loathsome dens, the sole business of whose life is to make sailors drunk and plunder them. In a neighbourhood such as this, if in any there exists a temptation for the dishonest publican to play tricks with his gin, the lucrative pursuit of the vile trade that the women follow depends in great part on the accommodating disposition of the publican, and therefore the women dare not complain, and the sailors half their time a spoony drunk, and will swallow anything as long as the gentle pole of whopping presses it on his acceptance. Well, what is the worst that can be said of the gin of Ratcliffe Highlay? Only that it contains 31% of spirit, with sugar and water. This sample, however, is prominent among the rest on account of one objectionable quality. H is very fiery from the presence of a tincture of capsicum, says the chemist. End quote. The rest of the samples are similarly 
free from contamination, according to the article. And the same could be said of the beer. The publican's reputation for adulterating the wares was undeserved, it seems. But it was noted that the salt content of the beer was potentially damagingly high. For all its improved quality, though, gin is still a powerful and addictive narcotic. Alcoholism was an incredible problem for the Victorians. And we mustn't forget that people routinely drank, as a matter of course, amounts that today would render us non-functional. This isn't the place to go into the temperance movement and their use of propaganda and so on, but we need to note that the image of a woman selling her children for gin was not an exaggeration, nor was alcoholism confined to adults. There's a quote here from the London Illustrated News. Quote, There are few places in London where so great a variety of characters may be seen popping in and out in a short space of time, as at the bars of our modern gin palaces. Even respectable men, who meet each other by chance, after a long absence, must drop in at the nearest tavern, although they scarcely have a minute to spare, to drink a glass together at the bar, and inquire about old friends. Married women, we are sorry to say, many of them the wives of clever mechanics, also congregate when they ought to be providing dinner for their families. Such things are thought but little of among those who are far from being numbered with the lowest orders of society. Then there are the young, itinerant vendors of almost every imaginable thing. These are also constant members of the bar, confining themselves generally to pennyworths of gin. The costermongers who come wheeling and shouting from opposite directions with their barrows, if they chance to meet near the door of a tavern, must, after a little gossip, go in and have their drain. Added to these, there are the poor, the old and the miserable, who look and feel half dead, as they themselves express it, unless they are lighted up every two or three hours with a glass of spirits. Many of these have become so habituated to drink that they care but little for food and rarely partake of a substantial meal. A pennyworth of boiled shellfish, such as wilks or mussels, an oyster or two, or a trotter, or sometimes a fried fish, all of which are borne into these places by hawkers every hour of the day, may be taken as fair samples of the food consumed by these regular drinkers. Nor is it at the front of the gaudily fitted up bars alone where such quantities of spirit are consumed. Women and children, even, are coming in with bottles, some of the latter so little that, like the one which our artist has so truthfully sketched, they are scarcely able to reach up, place the bottle upon the zinc-covered bar. If the weather is cold, they are generally sent out in their mother's shawls and bonnets, the one trailing upon the ground, the other completely burying their little dirty faces.
Even these young, miserable creatures are fond of drink and may sometimes be seen slyly drawing the cork outside the door and lifting the poisonous potion to their white, withered lips. They have already found that gin numbs and destroys for a time the gnawing pangs of hunger and they can drink the fiery mixture in its raw state. End quote. That's a reminder that beyond the glittering facade of glass, sparkling gas lights, and the romantic quotes from Dickens about colourful characters, there lay the harsh reality of life for many of the Victorian poor. Not gin punches at the cricket club on a sunny day, whilst your valet brings you pies and fruits. Just neat gin to keep starving children from feeling the hunger. We've mentioned Max Schlesinger and his book Saunterings in and about London from 1853 before on the show and he is clearly scathing about the poor drinking gin especially when they fritter away a week's wages on a Saturday to ensure that they have gin on a Sunday to tide them over till the gin palace opens up again on a Monday. Quote, The palace is always crowded with guests who standing, staggering, crouching or lying down, groaning and cursing, drink and forget. On sober working days and intolerable weather, there is nothing to strike the uninitiated in Drury Lane. Many a capital of a small German country is worse paved and lighted, nor is misery so conspicuous and staring in this quarter as in Spitalfields, St Giles, Saffron Hill and other black slums of London. But at certain bestial periods, misery oozes out of all its pores like Mississippi mud. Saturday and Monday nights and Sundays after church time, those are the times in which Drury Lane appears in full characteristic glory. End quote. Now, you do need to bear in mind that Max is a travel writer, or was, so he was always going to be a bit over the top. But he isn't saying much that you can't find in plenty of other sources. Perhaps it is fair to say that Hogarth's Gin Lane hadn't really gone away in the Victorian age. It had just been tidied up a bit. But then again, you have to look at the other side of the coin here. The gin industry provided enormous direct and indirect employment, not just to produce and serve, but also in transportation, orders for huge stills, spare parts, complex industrial machinery, glassware, furnishings, lamps, accounting books and clerks. It drove innovation and provided immense economic boosts. It might be devastating to some of the poor, but for the wider economy, it was a much more mixed blessing. Above all, though, 
it would help drive the empire. I've done a show on fish and chips being a food that fueled the empire. Well, gin was in many ways another of its secret weapons. Without gin, it's unlikely the empire could have spread as far and wide as it did. You've probably all heard the story of how the gin and tonic was invented in India. Quinine was used as an anti-malarial medicine. It's taken prophylactically. And it was a rather bitter powder initially. So the tonic was sweetened to mask the taste of the quinine. And gin was then added to give the troops an extra reason for taking their medicine. This enabled the British military to operate in more difficult malarial zone climates, especially when combined with other anti-malarial measures. Now this is all linked to India in popular myth, but actually it started when the Royal Navy physician, William Blakey, and he is credited with the first successful use of long-term malaria prophylaxis when he used quinine for a 118-day exploration of the River Niger in 1854. Now this breakthrough allowed the Royal Navy to operate more effectively on the West African coast, essential in supporting both its imperial power projection role, but also increasing its effectiveness as an anti-slavery force, especially against American slave ships. This in due course meant Victorian explorers could begin to open up the interior of many areas that had been previously almost lethal to non-acclimatised European visitors due to malarial disease. Traders, missionaries and the inevitable British exploring officer followed to establish a representation at local courts. British imperial power relied heavily on improvements in public health and new food types like fish and chips. Indeed, a huge amount of modern medicine is directly descended from the work done for the British military. Armies can be immensely destructive, but they are often drivers of immense change and innovation. Nothing focuses the human mind like finding new ways to kill the enemy before they kill you. I'm going to quote now on the use of quinine in India. Um, I'm terribly sorry, I've actually lost the reference for the quote, but I will make sure it's up on the website when the transcript's available. So, quote, The first known quinine-based tonic was launched by Erasmus Bond in 1854. Tonic was first popular in the British colonies, especially in India. So when Schweppes launched their first carbonated quinine tonic, In 1870, they branded it India Tonic Water. The ladies and gentlemen of the Raj also drank phenomenal quantities of gin. Now, the British Imperial forces had to routinely operate in malarial areas. During the Napoleonic and Crimean Wars, malaria was devastating to the troops. Operating in India, the Caribbean and parts of Africa was nearly impossible without quinine and the mosquito net. Stretches of the African coast were referred to as the white man's grave, and during the Napoleonic period, a military posting to the Caribbean 
was seen as tantamount to a death sentence. Now, though, there was an opportunity, and the Victorians seized it. Men like Livingston could finally venture deep into uncharted Central Africa. The protection was far from perfect, but it was light years beyond what was available barely 50 years before. It is interesting to remember that the mosquito net was only intended to prevent the annoyance of being bitten, not to prevent malaria, specifically as quinine was. Only when brilliant Scotsman Ronald Ross formed his partnership with Dr Manson and identified the parasite breeding in the mosquito was the transmission method confirmed to be from a mosquito bite in 1897. Ross rightly earned a Nobel Prize for his discovery, despite his incredible difficulties in experimenting in India. Almost inevitably, he got involved in bitter disputes over the right to claim the discovery with various other scientists. And knowing how to mix a gin cocktail was considered a fundamental skill for a junior British officer. A typical gin sling, for instance, might look something like this. Ingredients. One wine glass full of gin, two slices of lemon, three lumps of sugar, and ice. But it wasn't just officers that mixed. Cocktails had taken off in America and were soon highly popular in the UK. Even in one of his earliest books, Notes on American Travels, Dickens mentions gin cocktails. And Dickens himself was a keen cocktail artist. When you read Dickens' descriptions of a gin and lemon punch in A Christmas Carol, well, this was a man describing something he loved. He certainly wasn't an alcoholic, but he was well known as a host who delighted in seeing his guests enjoying themselves. If you remember the cocktail ingredients I posted on Facebook recently, to let listeners have a guess what I was mixing, well, I'll give you the answer. There were some very close guesses, but no one gets the Prince Albert Clever Clogs Award this time round. And the actual ingredients I photographed were gin, lime juice, cherry brandy, benedictine, aromatic bitters, and sparkling water. And the drink I mixed from these was an original Singapore sling. And this was actually a gin sling based originally on the Victorian recipes that had been well known in the cricket clubs of the time, modified slightly around 1915. Now, the modified version of the Singapore sling in the 1970s is based on these old recipes from pre-World War II and mid-World War I that were based on these older Victorian gin sling recipes. But the 1970s version, well, because it was the 1970s, added pineapple juice, because apparently everyone in the 1970s was crazy about pineapples. If anyone is a cocktail junkie and wants to argue with me about the 1915 recipe and the Raffles Hotel, feel free to email me and we can talk about the fascinating digitisation of the Singapore Library Archives and the amazing stories. Now, not to be outdone in inventiveness, in 1867, the Royal Navy made the issuing of citrus mandatory on board ships to prevent scurvy. 
rather than leaving it up to individual captains or chief medical officers. The gin became commonly mixed with raw citrus or sweet citrus cordial, leading to the development of a classic cocktail known as the gimlet. In the domestic sphere of the late Victorian period, Mrs Beaton is quite clear in her household bible, Mrs Beaton's book of household management, when she says, quote, To invite a person to your house is to take charge of his happiness so long as he is beneath your roof. The mistress of the house should always be certain that the coffee is excellent, whilst the master should be answerable for the quality of his wines and liqueurs. End quote. Now, as a side note here, Mrs. Beaton doesn't mention tea. I suspect that she felt that anyone who could screw up a cup of tea was frankly beyond help. Now, this sort of injunction of hers would have been taken incredibly seriously by the acutely status-conscious middle-class Victorians. A man would be expected to serve his guests good spirits. Brandy was naturally at the top of the social scale of drinks, but being able to serve a good gin punch on a hot day would require a good gin. The butler would be doing the serving in most instances. The drinks selected would reflect on the senior male of the family. He would expect to be guided by a highly knowledgeable butler who was responsible for storing and tracking all the wines and spirits in the cellars. Some butlers could be bribed by suppliers, but the reputation of the household and the butler himself rested on supplying guests with good quality wines and spirits, and a sensible employer would highly reward a good butler, and thus the reputation of the butler and the household would spread. Being able to mix a good Gin and tonic would also be a requirement. Cocktails had a mixed reputation. Some Victorian upper classes loved them. Others regarded them as an unhealthy Americanization. But they became very fashionable. And again, a well-mixed cocktail from good quality ingredients reflected on the host, or if you were in a public establishment, on the hotel and bar and its reputation. Okay, so you can see here from this gallop through gin that it's actually quite a complicated drink with a complicated history. And it really did have a huge impact, not just on the Victorians, but on the development of much of world history, as the Victorians were able to use it to explore new areas with the inevitable consequences that followed. I hope you've enjoyed this. It's much longer than my usual mini-sodes. I'm actually going to have a gin and tonic now because this one's been a real knockout to put together. And I'm going to have an Amadeus pink gin, which is bought for me by a good friend of mine for my 40th birthday. And it is, naturally enough, one of the world's best gins produced by some of the world's best distillers who are from the nation's is obviously best at producing drinks. The French. Au revoir, mon amis. Okay, thanks for listening today. I'm now going to get busy on the next show. Don't forget to take a minute to subscribe or leave a review on iTunes 
or get in touch with me via email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Catch me on Twitter at ageofvictoria or via Facebook if you've got any questions or if you just want to chat. Goodbye, and I bid you adieu until next time. <laughs>